0: The two were quite famous. one went to war with weapons and men, and the other could do the same with words and wit. Yet their separate paths became one during this country's great and terrible civil war u s Grant saved the nation after the war. Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, would save u s grant this is the story of their remarkable friendship. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period, and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. On the 20th anniversary of the beginning of U.S. Grant's Overland Campaign, May 4, 1884, Wall Street magician Ferdinand Ward arrived that morning at Grant's home on 66th Street with a message of hope and dread. Their brokerage firm, Grant & Ward, was solvent, but the Marine Bank, which held $660,000 of their holdings, was not. Ward said he had raised 250000 to correct the problem, and asked Grant if he could raise $150,000. That very afternoon, Grant visited the home of the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. William Henry Vanderbilt, who had earlier warned Grant about Ward's risky business practices. I care nothing for the Marine Bank, General Grant, Vanderbilt began. To tell you the truth, I care very little about Grant and Ward, but to accommodate you personally, I will draw a check for the amount you ask. I consider it a personal loan to you and not to any other party. The next morning, the 5th, Grant handed the check to Ward and the financial crises that concerned the Wall Streeters seemed to pass. However, that afternoon, Ward told Buck, one of Grant's sons, that Vanderbilt's $150,000 was not enough. More money was required. Rather than worry his father, Buck, a competent lawyer and dutiful son, sought advice He went to financial tycoon Jay Gould, who looked over a list of Grant and Ward's holdings and proclaimed them virtually worthless. Faced with bankruptcy, Buck now paid a visit to his law partner, Stanley Elkins. Both agreed they should make a call on Ward at his home. That evening, the two arrived uninvited at 181 Pierpont Street in Brooklyn and were greeted by Ward's wife, Henrietta. She told them her husband was out. They said they would wait. Five hours later, after midnight, Ward appeared and dismissed their fears. Outside in the chill of the early morning hour, Elkins turned to Buck and said, Did you observe Ward had his slippers on? He was in the house all the time and was afraid to come down and see us. The next morning, Tuesday the 6th, the Tower of Cards fell. The Marine Bank closed its doors, and one hour later, the First National Bank followed. Both announced they would not accept any checks drawn on Ward's account. Shortly after noon, Grant arrived at Number 2 Wall Street to begin his day. An angry crowd greeted him, demanding their invested money. Perplexed, he surveyed the scene, pushed through, and entered the building where his son broke the news. The Marine Bank closed this morning. Grant and Ward have failed. Ward has fled. The Wall Streeter had played them. Even the original investments, the $200,000 Ward was supposed to have originally raised, was fraudulent. Financial obligations exceeded $16 million. Assets totaled 57,000. When Grant heard the news, he nodded, but his expression never changed. He looked around for a moment, then wordlessly made his way through a crowd of people to the elevator, where he ascended to his office. There, his son repeated the news. Grant and Ward had failed. They were broke and massively in debt. Visibly shaken, Grant slumped into a chair and gripped its arms. He walked home that evening with $80 in his wallet. Julia had $130 in-house. He could not cover the firm's debt, but he made personal debts a matter of personal honor. He would cover his debt to Vanderbilt, who offered to waive the loan, but Grant refused. To cover what he owned, he sold ornaments from hats he wore at the Battle of Belmont and Fort Donaldson. He sold shoulder straps from uniforms he wore at Vicksburg and Petersburg. He sold a gold model of the table used at the McLean House, a pen used to write orders, 40 gold medals, swords, gifts collected from around the world, even his commissions from second lieutenant to four-star general. In the midst of all this, a gift arrived. It was from an aging veteran, Charles Wood, who sent a check for $1,000 from his home in Lansingburg, New York. He explained his act, on account of my share for services ending April 1865. Overwhelmed, Grant let it be known that he would somehow, some way, repay Wood. Now, Ward was eventually located, tried, found guilty, and sent to jail for six years. Though justice was served, the arms of financial disaster wrapped themselves around the man who had served as the nation's commander-in-chief and saved the Union. On the very Sunday morning that Ferdinand Ward asked U.S. Grant for $150,000, Samuel Clemens... Sam to his closest friends, and Mark Twain to his readers, was at his home in Hartford, Connecticut. He was planning yet another speaking tour, this time with Louisiana novelist George Washington Cable. Like the broken man on 66th Street, whose West Point friends also called him Sam, Clemens pursued the drive for wealth and was forever concocting schemes that might bring him financial reward. He wanted Cable to join him in a lecture tour that would publicize their works and, hopefully, increase their bank accounts. So, the two planned, but never on a Sunday, for the devout Cable refused to dishonor the Sabbath. That annoyed Clemens, who declared, he has taught me to abhor and detest the Sabbath day and hunt up new and troublesome ways to dishonor it. For the man whose world had crashed around him in New York City, Clemens quite simply worshipped him. As one biographer put it, Samuel Clemens was a Grant-intoxicated man. Though different in personality, temperament, and outlook, the two shared much. Both grew up on the frontier. Both were sons to successful fathers who expected much of them. Like Grant, Clemens had failed in his early years to live up to his father's expectations. And quite honestly, in the little towns where both were reared, few believed Sam Clemens and Sam Grant would amount to anything. Both were boys with dreams and struck out on their own, struggling as they went. Fortunately, both made a name for themselves and met for the first time at a Washington City reception in the winter of 1866. Grant was 43, Clemens 30. There was a handshake, but neither exchanged a word. A second meeting came at the executive mansion during Grant's first term as president. Introduced by a Nevada senator, Clemens greeted the president politely, and then the two stood there, facing one another, frozen in awkwardness. As Clemens remembered it, I shook hands, and then there was a pause and silence. I couldn't think of anything to say, so I merely looked into the general's grim, immovable countenance, a moment or two in silence, and then I said, Mr. President, I am embarrassed. Are you He smiled, which would have done no discredit to a cast-iron image, and I got away under the smoke of my volley. It would be some ten years when they met again. Asked to introduce Grant at a banquet in Chicago, Clemens finally broke the ice, and the two worked diligently to cement a friendship. When Grant moved to New York City, Clemens visited often. It was during one of those visits that the humorist suggested that Grant set down on paper the story of his life, his battles, his presidency. Twain was blunt and almost argumentative. It was indeed time for him to write his memoirs. The man who dictated terms to Robert E. Lee at Appomattox listened politely in silence then shook his head. He had no confidence in his writing and was sure, as he put it, that the book would have no sale. Twain countered and even suggested that with his help, he could, as Twain put it, could save him from making unwise contracts with publishers. But Grant would not budge. He simply changed the subject. But that was in 1881, three years before bankruptcy. On that May Day in 1884, when he learned his financial world was shattered, a deceived and broken U.S. Grant called for his carriage and went home. There, he found on the front table a New York Sun headline that blared, Is Grant guilty? The charge was absolutely false, but the accusation stung him. A spectator from afar, from his steamboat-shaped home on Farmington Avenue in Hartford, Samuel Clemens was saddened by the precipitous fall of one he thought so highly, not only for his loss of money, but for the grievous wound to his pride and honor. It seemed Grant was a victim of the era that Twain had lampooned and unwittingly given name to, the Gilded Age. Both realists, they acknowledged that the financial barons of the time and their money ruled America. And quite honestly, both wanted for themselves and their families a slice of the financial pie. Yet representative of the era, Ferdinand Ward cruelly crushed the world of the man who had been president. And so it would be. The writer, to restore the savings of the man he admired, began to think about something he had suggested three years earlier, the writing of memoirs, accounts that might restore Ulysses S. Grant and his family's financial well-being. In mid-June of 1884, Grant attended a convention of Army chaplains held at nearby Ocean Grove. It was his first public appearance since Grant and Ward's demise, and quite honestly, he was worried how he would be received. There, his friend, Dr. A.J. Palmer, introduced him with, No combination of Wall Street sharpers shall tarnish the luster of my old commander's fame for me. A standing ovation greeted Grant. Feeling somewhat reassured about how he might be greeted by Northern veterans, he, on June 11th traveled to Brooklyn to attend the annual reunion of the Society of the Army of the Potomac. Again, he was greeted warmly and even elected the Society's president. Watching from afar was Richard Watson Gilder, who was the senior editor of Century magazine. He was struck by Grant's receptions. And the wheels began to turn on an idea that he, Associate Editor Robert Underwood Johnson, and Century Corporation President Roswell Smith had earlier kicked around. A series of articles written by Civil War participants. They would appear first as magazine articles, then be bound together for a book. Gilder reasoned it was time to approach Grant. He had done so once before, but like De Clemens, the general said no. But again, that was before his whirl had come apart. In mid-June, it was Johnson who visited Grant at the beach town of Long Branch, New Jersey. He was quite surprised how Grant was so open in describing his financial woes. Johnson later wrote, "...he gave me the impression of a wounded lion." He had been hurt to the quick in his proud name and in his honor. At their meeting, Johnson came quickly to the point. But again, Grant repeated he was not a writer, and his campaigns had already been covered by others. But Johnson did not back down. He stressed Grant could write as many articles as he wanted. He would assist in style and in marketing the work, yet Grant still resisted. Johnson countered with a suggestion that Grant write four articles, one on Shiloh, the Vicksburg Campaign, the Battle of the Wilderness, and Lee's Surrender, and the magazine would pay him $500 for each. It was an extraordinary sum at the time, and faced with hard times, Grant relented. He immediately, and true to character, dove into his task. He averaged writing some four hours a day. To spark memories of the battles, he referred to official reports in previous articles and quite often called upon his son, Fred, to retrieve useful documents. Incredibly, on July the 1st, the New York offices of Century Magazine received Grant's first draft. Gilder, Johnson, and Smith were ecstatic. It was a coup for the magazine to receive an article written by, clearly, the Union hero of the war. Yet... When read, the four-page article about Shiloh was flat, printable, but there was no color, no life, none of what Grant was thinking, fearing, considering, or doing. So again, Johnson returned to Long Branch. In fact, he visited several times that July and coached Grant on what was needed, what would add to his account. And Johnson was a good coach. Often, the associate editor asked Grant about a particular incident, and Grant's answer was alive with anecdote and personal feeling. Each time, Johnson would simply say, well, you should put that in the article. Johnson's coaching lit a fire under Grant, who, by the end of August, had entirely rewritten the article. His prose radiated confidence, his story memorable, full of incidents and anecdotes, it became quite clear that Grant had a knack for detail, could take complex issues and explain them simply, concisely. In short, when Grant's article appeared in Century Magazine the following February, there was great acclaim. What he had done was, in fact, revolutionary, for no American soldier to that time had written about his experiences as a commander. Shiloh's success pushed Gilder, Johnson, and Smith to suggest to Grant that he write about the entire war. The three planned a campaign of their own to that end during the summer and fall of 1884, and that meant kicking around what they might pay. It was Smith who bucked any idea of an advance on future sales of any memoir. In his defense, though it is customary today, then it was not. Advance or not, Smith wanted memoirs written by U.S. Grant. Meanwhile, Grant began writing about the Vicksburg Campaign and found to his surprise that he actually enjoyed the researching and writing. While he attacked his task with characteristic dogged determination, Robert Watson Gilder began to think his idea about memoirs might be the same idea by another Perhaps others might make a publishing offer too good to refuse. Evidently, the concern was great enough that in late September, Smith and Johnson dropped by to visit Grant again down at Long Branch. Though the day was warm, Grant had his throat wrapped in a scarf and his voice was raspy. It was after lunch, seated in wicker chairs on a veranda, and Grant asked, "'Do you really think anyone would be interested in a book by me?' It was Smith who answered, General, do you not think the public would read with avidity Napoleon's personal account of his battles? Grant seemed impressed by the answer. It was Smith who then revealed the memoirs would be sold by subscription. It would be handsomely bound and sold by competent agents across the land. When the visit ended, no contracts were signed, but there seemed to be an understanding. By now, Grant had finished his article on Vicksburg and was working on an article about Chattanooga. October neared its end, and the Grants prepared to return to the city. He had research and writing to do, and he also had a doctor's appointment. The pain in his throat had returned. That October and several times in November, Sam Clemens, when he was in New York, went to visit the Grants at their home on 66th Street. Noting his eye for detail, Clemens enjoyed asking questions about this or that incident during the war. Quite honestly, both were storytellers. The difference between the two was that, for Grant, the soul of a story was based in its elemental truth and its poignant humor. For Twain, the soul of a story was in its rich detail, its mystery and nuance, its stunning and unpredictable outcome. While Grant liked to tell stories and told them well, Twain loved to tell tales, and the taller the tale, the better. As to the near future that would forever bind the two men, Clemens detailed a partially true story in his autobiography. He wrote, One night in the first week of November, 1884, I had been lecturing in Chickering Hall and was walking homeward. It was a rainy night, and but few people were about. In the midst of a black gulf between lamps, two dim figures stepped out of a doorway and moved along in front of me. I heard one of them say, Do you know General Grant is actually determined to write his memoirs and publish them? He has said so today in so many words. In truth, Clemens did indeed hear two men conversing, but he had known for a while that Grant was going to write his memoirs, and he also knew that the Century Company wanted to publish them. But Clemens wanted them for his publishing company. Yet even as Robert Underwood Johnson and Roswell Smith were visiting Grant at Long Branch back in September, Clemens was already urging his publishing contact, Charles Webster, to maneuver their publishing firm into competition with Century. Back to Twain's story. The two figures in his foggy November evening disappear into the night. Again, in truth, Clemens caught up with them, introduced himself, and one just happened to be Century's Richard Watson Gilder, who invited the author to his home on East 15th Street for dinner, which Clemens gladly accepted. It was at Gilder's home that he confidently confirmed that Century was negotiating with Grant. Clemens congratulated Gilder and Century's good fortune. Still, though, Clemens was astounded that Century only offered $500 per article, for each Grant was already writing. To Clemens, it was, as he put it, not only the monumental injustice of the 19th century, but of all centuries. Early the next morning, Clemens hurried to Grant's home, and as he tells it, upon arrival... Fred Grant was apparently conducting a final reading and examination of the contract himself. He found it satisfactory and said so, and his father stepped to the table and took up the pen. It might have been better for me, possibly, if I had left him alone. But I didn't. I said, don't sign it. Let Colonel Fred read it to me first. Grant stopped, looked at Clemens, and agreed. I would do no harm. Contract eventually given to Clemens, he read it and shook his head in disgust. Grant was to receive a 10% royalty on the sale of his memoirs. Clemens was appalled and began his plea for Grant to give his memoirs to him instead. The general was suspicious, but Clemens pushed on. Strike out the 10% and put 20% in its place. Better still, put 75% of the net returns in its place. Grant thought about all of this. He knew the Century Company would never agree to pay those terms. But bound by honor and loyalty, Grant maintained he still wanted to sign the contract as offered. Clemens continued. He pointed out that 1% of the 10 Grant would get would go to some trivial tax for the book's share of clerk hire, house rent, other trivial nonsense, as he put it. Still, Grant repeated he should sign the contract as he had been negotiating with Gilder, Johnson, and Smith for months, and he did not want to be thought dishonest or a thief or robber of a publisher. Yet Grant was intrigued. He asked what publishing company would pay the numbers Clemens presented. Clemens answered, I named the American Publishing Company of Hartford. He asked if I could prove my position, and I said I could furnish the proof by telegraph in six hours. By now, Fred Grant, who knew the Hartford Company had successfully published several of Twain's works, was intrigued, but Grant was still skeptical. Yet the general accepted Fred's advice to wait 24 hours before signing anything. The next day, Clemens returned and continued, dogged Grant-like in his verbal siege. He pressed how Grant's memoirs would be sold by subscription, and how that method would sell eight to ten times the amount of a book sold in bookstores. Still resisting, Clemens changed his approach. Instead of the American publishing company, he told the general he would sell the book himself. Sell me the memoirs, General. I am a publisher. I will pay double the price. I have a checkbook in my pocket. Take my check for $50,000 now and let's draw the contract. Grant was floored and incredibly rejected the offer, stating that he and Clemens were friends and he would feel terrible if Clemens did not turn a profit. Clemens countered that he would make $100,000 within six months. Still, Grant hedge, but said he would take the matter to an old friend, George Childs, who was the publisher of the Philadelphia Ledger. For Clemens, it was a half victory, but considering that some twenty-four hours earlier Grant held pen over paper and was about to sign a Century Company contract, a half victory was better than none at all. After Clemens left Grant on that fateful November the twentieth, eighteen eighty-four, the general discussed the offer with his son Fred wife Julia and former military aide Adam Badou. He then wrote Chiles and asked if he would come to New York to review the competing offers and handle negotiation. Unlike so many who had exploited him during his presidency, this time U.S. Grant chose wisely. George Chiles was an honest man and a good friend. He was well established, well respected. He lived modestly. An amateur historian and sophisticated writer, he understood business and, most important of all, never used his friendship with Grant to further his own career or business interests. He traveled to New York, looked over the competing contracts, and gave both to his own lawyer. It did not take long. By early December, Chiles was certain that Clemens had made the better offer. And to make absolute certain, Childs and his lawyer talked with Charles Webster of the American Publishing Company who said he would give Grant a choice, either 20% gross royalty on sales or 70% of net profit. Grant asked Clemens which was better and was told 20% of gross royalty on the sales of the book. Finally, Grant was satisfied and the deal was closed when Childs told him, Give the book to Twain. Clemens was overjoyed, penned a note to Charlie Webster, which read, If these chickens should really hatch according to my account, General Grant's royalties will amount to $420,000 and will make the largest single check ever paid an author in the world's history. And there was more. Clemens made certain that unlike the practice of that day, the general would receive an advance of $10,000. He also stipulated that in the case of Grant's death, the rights of the book would go to Julia, who could then transfer the book to Charles Webster for the sum of $1,000, all done to keep creditors from seizing the book's profits. It was a grateful Grant who then informed Clemens that he would forego the $10,000 advance, but to aid his family, accept $1,000. That prompted Clemens to shake his head. And later remark, it was a shameful thing that a man who had saved his country and its government from destruction should still be in a position where so small a sum, $1,000 could be looked upon as a godsend. As it turned out, one clause in the contract that pertained to Grant's physical condition took on an ironic reality. It was back in the middle of October of eighteen eighty four, just weeks before Clemens' visit to Grant, when the general walked into the offices of his family doctor, Fordyce Barker. He was there about a condition that began back on the morning of june the second, when the family was down at the beach cottage at Long Branch. There he had joined Julia in their pantry to share some fruit. They chatted for a few moments, then Grant bit into a peach, Seconds later, he howled in pain. The pain in his throat lasted only a few moments, but it had been unbearable. By July, the pain in his throat returned with some degree of regularity. A visiting surgeon from Philadelphia examined Grant and found the back of his throat inflamed. A prescription was written, and the general was advised to see his family doctor immediately. Barker, however, was in Europe at the time, so Grant delayed a visit. Now it was October, and Dr. Barker noticed a swelling on the back of the tongue. Rather than give a diagnosis, he sent Grant to the foremost throat specialist on the East Coast, Dr. John Hancock Douglas. On October the 22nd, Grant entered Douglas's office complaining of throat pain, headaches, and a limp, the result of a fall he had taken on ice the year before. Upon inspection, Douglas noticed a small inflamed growth that looked scaly and infected. He stepped back and wore a countenance that prompted Grant to ask, Is it cancer? And Douglas was blunt. General. The disease is serious, epithelial in character and sometimes capable of being cured. Quite honestly, what he could have added was that the inflammation was cancerous, malignant, and would probably kill him. Grant's pain came from an enlarged gland on the right side of his tongue. Douglas concluded the cancer could not be treated and that eventually, in the midst of excruciating pain, Grant would die. The only thing that could be done was to make the general as comfortable as possible and wait for the inevitable. He applied a myriad of cocaine to the swollen area and told Grant that he should visit twice a day for application so that he might work sleep, and for a time, eat. First financial, now physical disaster, and looming before him a short amount of time to write his memoirs and hopefully leave his family in some degree of financial comfort. He was not the only one with a task to complete. Back in June of 1876, Twain retreated to Quarry Farm, Elmira, New York, where he began his latest literary effort. In a letter, he noted his latest project, began another boy's book, more to be at work than anything else. I have written 400 pages on it, therefore it is nearly half done. It is Huck Finn's autobiography. I like it only tolerable well, as far as I have got, and may possibly pigeonhole or burn the manuscript when it is done. Well, we know he didn't burn it. But after Chapter 16 in August of 1876, he stopped. The well had run dry. Huck and Jim had escaped from St. Petersburg, which was Hannibal in the book, and were on the Mississippi headed south. They had made it to Cairo, Illinois. Now Twain had to decide whether Jim and Huck would head up the Ohio River to freedom, which seemed natural. Or go south, in a strange and unintentional way, the two paralleled Grant's military career. Early on, in 1862, he headed south down the Tennessee River, and later, the next year, down the Mississippi to Vicksburg. And as he did, he aided in Lincoln's plan for emancipation. But at the end of August 1876, Twain put it away. Ironically, he returned to it the very same year he approached Grant about his memoirs. By Christmas of 1884, Grant was depressed, moody, unable to work. Quite aware if he died he would leave his family, his reputation, medals, and little else, he sat in his chair each day and looked out the front window onto 66th Street. By January, swallowing was sheer agony, and he began to lose weight. Yet, Beyond his own family, few, if any, knew of his diagnosis. He didn't want anyone to know. Newspapers caught hints and printed rumors, but there was no confirmation. Guarding his secret and not wanting his friends to pity him, he saw few outside of his doctors and family, but there was one exception. Just before Christmas, 1884, William T. Sherman was in the city and visited. They talked for several hours. If Sherman noticed any deterioration, he either ignored it or was satisfied with Grant's explanation that he was ill but recovering. What struck Sherman was not his physical appearance, but his material distress. So much so that on December the 28th, he arranged a meeting with several financiers in hoping that they would begin a subscription for Grant's relief. Grant learned of it. Squashed the effort. He might be penniless, but he would keep his pride. He would not accept gifts, and he would not be the object of pity. Like campaigns of old, Sherman tried another route, an in run, if you will, through Congress. Sherman and others lobbied Congress to reinstate Grant to the regular Army's retired list. Reinstatement would mean the salary of a lieutenant general and would not endanger the promotion of another. The Senate eventually passed the bill. The House did not. One vote on February 16, 1885, the 23rd anniversary of Grant's victory at Fort Donelson, the House of Representatives, by a vote of 158 to 103, 16 fewer than the two-thirds needed, refused to suspend the rules to consider the bill. Thus, as the New York Times editorialized, four Confederate brigadiers, 11 colonels, one lieutenant colonel, one major, five captains, two lieutenants, and 12 enlisted men did to Grant in Congress what they could not do in the field. Sherman was disappointed. So too was Grant, But by that time, his mood had improved. Buoyed by the challenge ahead of him, he rose early each morning, wrapped himself in a shawl, and focused on writing. Meanwhile, Clemens was on the reading circuit with George Washington Cable that we noted earlier. They called their swing the Twins of Genius Tour. And for Clemens, it was all he could do to finish it. Like old married couples, they got on each other's nerves. As to Cable's platform talent, Clemens wrote, he was able to fatigue a corpse. And to be honest, Cable tolerated Clemens about as much as Clemens did he. At one point in the tour, Cable joined him in the passenger seat of a railroad passenger car. Cable, why are you sitting here? You don't smoke. And you know I always smoke and sometimes swear. And Cable thought for a moment and said, I know, Mark. I don't do those things, but I can't help admiring the way you do them. Despite the barbs, the two did indeed respect one another. When Clemens returned to New York in February of 1885, he immediately made his way to 66th Street. Though being examined by Dr. Douglas, Grant warmly greeted his friend. He said, I mean you shall have the book. I have made up my mind about that. Clemens beamed but he was disturbed by Grant's appearance. To Clemens, he was thinner, weaker, and spoke only with great effort. At times, Grant clutched at his throat as if in pain. Sure enough, Clemens had heard rumors, but he could not believe it was nothing more than a nagging cold. It was Dr. Douglas who corrected him. Facing Clemens, he told him Grant's illness was serious and would only get worse. And Fred Grant finished off any speculation. His father was ill and was not expected to recover. Samuel Clemens was shocked. His confidant, his source for admiration, was in trouble. So ironic for these two men. Mark Twain was no more a military man than Grant was a novelist, but the two had forged a bond. Both, through their lives and stories, were consumed by this nation, America, its people, its past. As the shock of Grant's condition became Clemens' reality, the novelist allowed faith and reason to prevail. He was certain Grant would finish his memoirs. And to help, given the circumstances, Clemens hired a stenographer, Noble E. Dawson, to set down in plain prose what Grant dictated to him. By now, Grant's contract had morphed into an agreement with Charles L. Webster and company, and when that news was released, reporters besieged both Clemens and Webster. Subscription agents were hired, and the public relations machine kicked into high gear. That, personally, Clemens was short of funds to underwrite the venture, meant little. He borrowed $200,000 to underwrite the printing and publishing of Grant's work. He supervised every aspect to ensure success, from reading galleries to ordering paper to ensuring the book would be properly printed, marketed, advertised, and sold. For the old soldier who was dying, U.S. Grant realized that success of his memoirs meant care and upkeep for his family. His campaign to write and finish was similar to Vicksburg, relieving the siege at Chattanooga and the Overland Campaign. Though in almost constant pain, his work sustained him. It gave him reason to live. It allowed him the means by which he tapped into his enormous reservoir of strength that at the most important times in his life he knew was there and he could call upon it. And so, while Grant pressed on, Clemens and his offices just two miles down the road from Grant's home wrestled with the final touches of his latest novel— Completed, he and Charlie Webster anxiously awaited reviews on Huckleberry Finn, which was finally released Wednesday, February eighteenth, 1885. Exactly one month later, the San Francisco Examiner weighed in. Its review? Negative. Nothing special, and the characters were nothing new. The Sunday Chronicle loved it. So did the Hartford Courant. The New York Sun was full of praise. The New York world, however, called it cheap and pernicious stuff. Papers in Boston had a field day. The evening traveler told its readers they should not bother with a work that was singularly flat, stale, and unprofitable. The advertiser told its Boston readers that Huck Finn was wearisome and labored. The Evening Traveler's first review was not enough. It went on to warn its readers that no one would ever buy the book except at the point of a bayonet. Then the committee on the Concord Free Library banned the book. Twain wrote Charlie Webster on this one. He wrote Dear Charlie, the committee of the Public Library of Concord, Massachusetts, has given us a rattling tip top puff which will go into every paper in the country. They have expelled Huck from their library as trash and suitable only for the slums. That will sell 25,000 copies for sure. And it sure did. And then on Sunday, March the 1st, the New York Times in black-bordered headlines trumpeted, Grant is dying. The secret was out. The Death Watch began. The next day, every New York City paper, the Tribune, World, Sun, Post, Journal, Daily News, and Brooklyn Eagle, all placed reporters on 66th Street. And so began the scheming and intrigue of reporters who vied for the precious scoop that the general had died. To protect the family, New York City Police Chief Adam Gunner posted policemen on the block to control reporters, the growing crowd of well wishers, and the curious. On the first day of April, Reverend John Philip Newman was called in to baptize an unconscious Grant. All thought death was imminent, but injection of brandy into his unconscious form revived him. Incredibly, his condition improved. Still, the bulldog. Still, unwilling to accept defeat. Like a military campaign, he continued to work on his memoirs while death tugged at his sleeve and there were others who wanted to complete a task, and that was the United States Congress. On March the 4th, 1885, the last morning of Chester A. Arthur's presidency, the House of Representatives reconvened and the Democratic Speaker of the House, Samuel J. Randall of Pennsylvania, ordered the clerk to date upcoming business as having been transacted the day before. He churned through parliamentary procedures, Cleared pressing agenda items, and then reopened the vote on Grant's military reinstatement. Within minutes, the House passed the measure. Now, Representatives scurried to find senators who were already assembling for Grover Cleveland's inauguration. The messages were all the same get back to the chamber and vote on the House passed bill. At the front of the Senate chamber, a clerk scaled a ladder and turned back the clock which was past noon, the time which, by law, Congress was required to adjourn. Thus, with time reversed, the grant bill passed and was made law. There was more drama. Outgoing President Chester A. Arthur directed the President Pro Tem of the Senate to send Grant a telegram informing him of his reinstatement that done. He and Speaker of the House Randall then joined the procession to escort Cleveland to his inauguration. As they did, the Senate clock struck noon. It was 20 minutes slow. The telegram arrived early afternoon. Grant read it and turned to his friend George Childs. I am grateful the thing has passed. Julia was overjoyed. Clemens, who was also in the room, beamed. He wrote about the moment. Every face there betrayed strong excitement and emotion, except one, General Grant's. He read the telegram, but not a shade or suggestion of a change exhibited itself in his iron countenance. The next morning, the 22nd President of the United States, Grover Cleveland, made the reinstatement official when he signed Grant's commission. Papers were presented to the new president by Robert Lincoln. Yes, the son of the martyred 16th President and outgoing Secretary of War. For Grant and his family, his reinstatement meant a salary of $13,500 a year, and Julia was assured of a retirement of $5,000 a year. The salary would not come close to clearing Grant's debts, but for the first time since the collapse of Grant and Ward, he began to worry less about his financial woes. His first check arrived March 31st, and it was deposited immediately. Then, Grant wrote a check. It was to Charles Wood of Lansingburg, New York, the veteran who had loaned Grant $1,000 on account of his share for Grant's services ending April 1865. Upon receipt, Wood immediately gave the money to charity, and did so in Grant's name. March had been a good month for writing. The weather had been rainy, dark. Clemens dropped by almost every day to check on his friend's condition and progress on the memoirs. There were periods of sheer exhaustion, but during the last two weeks of the month, Grant had been prolific. On several days, he wrote upwards to 10,000 words, which prompted Clemens to comment, It kills me these days to write half of that. And it was about this time that Grant, remarkable given his condition, completed his first volume and Clemens rushed it to the printers. That first volume covered Grant's early life, his childhood up through the Mexican War, and then on up to and through the surrender of Vicksburg. Even though March had been so productive, there were moments of great concern. On the 25th, Grant suffered a choking fit of such violence that he was immediately sedated with a cocktail of cocaine and morphine. Another spell followed the next morning and every evening thereafter until March the 30th when it appeared his condition had deteriorated to the point of death. Clemens fully expected him to die. So did Julia, who would enter her husband's bedroom, sit beside him weeping while waiting for his last breath, but he refused to go. On April the 4th, the 20th anniversary of the taking of Richmond, Virginia, his Dr. John Hancock Douglas turned to him, and playing off a line Grant used back in 1864 said, General, we propose to keep to this line if it takes all summer. The comment was met by a smile, and though it pained him greatly laughter. Five days later, on the anniversary of Lee's surrender, Douglas's patient plaintively asked his doctor if he might celebrate by taking one or two puffs on a cigar. Douglas and another of Grant's attending physicians, Dr. George Schrady, saw no harm, gave their permission. And so, Grant settled back in his chair and puffed away in contentment. That contentment, however, was short-lived. By April, each day was torture, and so he held off death with one hand as he wrote with the other. While awake, he remained stoic. It was when he slept that one could sense the sheer agony he was in. Through it all, Clemens checked and rechecked proofs of the first volume and made notes on proposed changes, although there were few, and what changes were made were minor pleased, he believed the warrior would win his race with death. He thought so from his observation that Grant repeatedly was able to pull from some inner resource, some strength to continue. And his writing was solid, even brilliant. That's what led to Clemens' surprise when in April, Fred confided that his father wondered why the novelist never offered any opinion on his writing. It was odd to twain while Grant, this power of strength could remain so uncertain. But Fred suggested that his father would appreciate the author's appraisal. The opportunity presented itself during a visit a few days later. After reading through several pages of manuscript from volume two, Twain turned to Grant and said, By chance, I have been comparing your memoirs with Caesar's commentaries and feel qualified to deliver judgment. I say in all sincerity that the same merits distinguish both books, clarity of statement, directness, simplicity, unpretentiousness, manifest truthfulness, fairness, and justice toward friend and foe alike, soldierly candor and frankness, and soldierly avoidance of flowery speech. I place the same two books side by side upon the same high level. We are told that Twain's words pleased Grant, who, though a conquering general, was still just a human being who needed reinforcement every now and then. On the 27th of April, Grant and his family celebrated his 63rd birthday. Like the soldier he was, he committed the morning to work and in early afternoon left home and took a carriage ride in the park. He enjoyed it so much, he took a second jaunt. Late that afternoon, he stood at attention in his upstairs window as New York's 7th National Guard Regiment passed in review. One of his former cavalry officers, James H. Wilson, called to bring him a gift, and sixty three roses arrived, a gift from Andrew Carnegie. That evening, Julia decorated the dinner table with sixty three candles. Two days later, the mood changed. When Grant, his family, and Clemens were deeply disturbed by a New York World story that reported Grant's memoirs were the work of a ghostwriter. Clemens was perhaps the most enraged, calling the paper that daily issue of unmedicated closet paper. Grant answered in print. There were actually four charges, and in a letter to Clemens, Grant addressed each one. It is suffice to say that all charges were laid to rest when the general simply wrote, the composition is entirely my own. Twain made sure Grant's response was front page news and justice was served. By the third week of May, Grant began the final pages of volume two. Writing for four to five hours a night, he covered Petersburg, Lee's Retreat, and Appomattox though he could barely swallow and was forced to communicate by writing short notes. He seemed focused. On the 8th of June, Grant communicated to Clemens that Volume 2 had been completed, but the copy was still a rough draft. Clemens however was ready to move forward. He contracted the use of 12 extra printing presses and 7 more binderies. In fact, all of his funds were now tied up in the printing, marketing and distribution of Grant's memoirs. And yet, when asked, the general held them back. He wanted to make a few revisions, iron out a few details, add some maps and comments. Clemens was frustrated but respected Grant's diligence. That month, it was too hot in the city, so on Tuesday the 16th, the shadow that was U.S. Grant shuffled through Grand Central Station. The entourage of those around him boarded William Henry Vanderbilt's private car and headed for Sarasota Springs and Anthony Joseph Drexel's cottage atop Mount McGregor. Their destination was 12 miles from Syracuse, two-story cottage that faced Vermont's green mountains. There, unable to talk, Grant would sit on the front porch and write. About the time he arrived at Mount McGregor, Clemens returned to Quarry Farm in Elmira. Quite honestly, he was impatient. Delay cost him money, and so he seemed to hover and around Grant, who stood by his guns The general would release the manuscript when he was satisfied, and that meant, for example, a complete rewriting of the chapter on Lee's surrender at Appomattox. All done within the living hell that each day brought him. By now, the cocaine treatments were more frequent and less effective. And yet on Thursday, July 16th, One month after his arrival at Mount McGregor, a seated and bundled Ulysses S. Grant put down his pencil, looked down at his paper, then handed his manuscript to his stenographer. He had finished. Dawson, the transcriber, noted, I shall never forget his joy at the completion of his book, often groggy and in great pain. In less than a year, He had written some 275,000 words. His memoir sold twice as many copies as his publisher, Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. One year later, Clemens presented Julia, the largest royalty check ever written at that time, $200,000 and there would be more. Some 350,000 sets were sold, and royalties totaled $450,000. With Samuel Clemens' help and support, those checks returned financial security to Grant's family. His work? A financial, literary, and personal success. With the completion of his memoirs, U.S. Grant had completed his next-to-last campaign. There was only one more, and that was life itself. That campaign came to an end when around 8 a.m. of Thursday, July 23rd, withered to less than 100 pounds, he finally surrendered. Like Lee, when he passed in October of 1870, Grant was 63 years of age. His mentor, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, was at Quarry Farm when his friend died. With news of Grant's passing, Twain wrote, I think his book kept him alive several months. He was a very great man, and superlatively good. Clemens had not been part of the funeral, but instead, early in the morning of the procession, took up a position in the window of his publishing firm overlooking Union Square, and for five hours watched the procession as it snaked its way north through Manhattan. That procession led to a temporary site alongside the Hudson. Today, he and his devoted wife, Julia, spend eternity in upper Manhattan. Twenty-five years later, at 622 in the morning of April the 21, 1910, Samuel Clemens found his release. He was 75. Laid to rest in Elmira, his last days had been spent in failing health pushed around in a bath chair that eerily resembled the one Grant had used, and like his friend, pushed around with his neck swaddled by scarves to keep away the cold. While he had helped in the restoration of Grant's financial world, he too benefited. To a few, he let it be known that the Grant Enterprise netted him $200,000, but his remaining years were filled with tragedy. A publishing firm he founded with Charles Webster was beset by debt and infighting. The profit he made from Grant's memoirs and his own Huck Finn went into the development of the page typesetting machine. It bankrupted him. He retreated to Europe where he made successful lecture tours, but in the midst of those he learned in August of 1896 that his beloved daughter Susie died. And again, while in Europe, his beloved wife passed in 1904. Yes, the association between the two men meant great financial success, but it was the American people and all those who appreciate literary treasures who benefited the most. We, all of us, benefit through the simple but direct words of the man who saved the Union and from the words and imagination of this country's most distinctly American author, Mark Twain. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, All modern American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain, called Huckleberry Finn. Indeed, that is the case for fiction. For nonfiction, that quote applies to Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs, which, as Clemens noted, was and is a literary masterpiece. Both men not only told stories about others, but stories about us, what it is to be American. And by doing so, both, the hero and humorist, were victorious. When next we gather, We'll return to September of 1863, to a time when Southern victory in Northwestern Georgia threatened to turn the tide of the conflict. I hope you'll join us when we'll tell the story of the bloodiest two-day battle of the American Civil War, the Battle of Chickamauga. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Bob Grasser, Raleigh Civil War Roundtable's editor of the Knapsack Newsletter. And the roundtable's webmaster at RaleighCWRT.org. That's RaleighCWRT.org.